Good morning, Gator fans, and welcome to episode four of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. My name is Dustin Smith, and for the first time since episode one, we finally got the whole gang together. As usual, we've got Neil Schulman, founder and lead writer for InAllKindsOfWeather.com, and we've got key contributor Casey Hampton with us as well. How's everybody doing today? Doing well, man. Good to be back. Good to have the whole gang back together, as you mentioned. Uh, Lots happened since our last episode, so we've got a good bit to talk about. Casey? Hey, man. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Just uh, trying to get out of the Georgia heat. (laughs) Fair. Fair statement. It's pretty hot up in Jersey, too. I know it's hotter in Georgia, but it's still low 90s here, so I definitely can empathize with that. Nothing like the heat in Athens of not winning a championship in 40 years, though. Boom. Roasted. (laughs) Dig it. I dig it. Awesome. We do have a lot to talk about today, including a wild past couple of weeks in recruiting, as well as the latest updates on a 2020 season that we assume we're going to have. But before we get into the good stuff today, on the behalf of Neil and Casey, I do want to apologize for the irregularity uh, with which we've been producing shows. We are going to try to get shows out there every week, if not every other week. The reason for the gap between episodes is that Casey got an increasingly demanding work schedule at Georgia Tech, and Neil has been very busy with a major project involving the Gator Good Foundation. For those of you that don't know, the Gator Good Foundation is a nonprofit organization that helps bring underprivileged individuals to their very first ever Florida Gator Games. And Neil is one of the five people behind it. These people raise money through donations and put together the experience of a lifetime for Gator fans who bleed orange and blue just like the rest of us or another just aren't able to get themselves to a game in the swamp. From what you've told me, Neil, it sounds like something big is in the works. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, it's been it's been just an, an incredibly rewarding experience for me, and I'm sure the other four people behind it with me would tell you the exact same thing. We're just a group of Gator fans who believe that standing and swaying and screaming for our boys in the swamp with some 90,000 other people is something that everybody should be able to experience, and we just hate the idea of a diehard Gator fan not being able to experience it for any number of valid reasons. 2020 was going to be our third year of doing this. Um, As you can probably guess, COVID-19 has thrown a bit of a monkey wrench into that. Um, In fact, I'm going to go ahead and publicly downgrade our chances of doing it this year to doubtful. But in the meantime, we are taking the time to grow and expand our footprint. This offseason, we officially became a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We got a sweet new logo, which was actually designed by a current Gator football player, Cliff Taylor. So shout out Cliff Taylor. Yeah, he does awesome stuff. Um, And those two things are just the first steps of what we've got coming. I can't say exactly what's about to happen next in part because I still don't know the micro specifics of it, but I will say that we're taking steps amidst this pandemic to ensure that when things do return to normal, we will be better equipped than ever before to make Gator fans swamp dreams come true. So if you're a Gator fan, 
let's just say that you're going to want to be following our social media pages. You can find us at the Gator Good on Twitter, the Gator Good Foundation on Facebook, and at Gator Good Foundation on Instagram. Um, that's that's pretty much the end of my subtle advertisement. So, Dustin, you're the host. Uh, back to you. Absolutely. Well, man, I just want to say that I love what you guys are doing. It is so awesome to see that you are reaching out and you are helping people experience their first Gator game. And I know while uh, this season may present complications for that, uh, I look forward to seeing uh, this come to fruition. So with that said, let's dive right into the number one topic for today, and that's recruiting. So if you haven't heard, Florida's had a very interesting past couple weeks on the recruiting trail. The Gators lost defensive back commit Clinton Burton to Boston College of all schools uh, nine days after he tweeted that his recruitment was shut down and that we implied that he'd be a Gator after that. Um, obviously, many fans were too pleased with that news, to say the least. I certainly wasn't. What do you guys think about that? It just feels like if you decommit from Florida to flip to Boston College, there's something deeper at play than than everyone can see. Exactly. That's all exactly. I'm gonna say. I don't want. I don't want to. I mean, that, that's about the nicest way I can put that. Well, but right. there's also stuff that we can't see from a coaching standpoint too. There may be somebody else that we're not aware of. Well, that's part of what I'm alluding to, but yes. So, but you know, fans are always going to go to, well, our staff isn't doing what they need to be doing, or, you know, they need to be better recruiters. And in some instances, I will agree with that statement, but I think particularly at that um, position with where our class is and who we have committed, I think we're okay. Yeah. At this point, I, I have to agree with you guys. I think there's a certain extent where players want to want to get that playing time, and we're pretty loaded at, at, at corner and defensive back. Um, now, just kind of turning things around, Florida also picked up four commitments since then. Neil, I know you watch a lot of tape on the kids, so let's go commitment by commitment and get your get both of your thoughts on each of them. The first of these was Donovan McMillan, a safety from Pennsylvania, who chose Florida over Virginia Tech. Why do you guys think we got him? Well, I think he sees his versatility playing a big role for the Gators. Um, I think college football is moving to a spot where defenses are going to have to have some kind of hybrid linebacker safety position. Uh, you can call it the star. You can call it the spur like South Carolina does. You can call it the pretzel like my high school team does, whatever. College football defenses are going to a point where this position is a necessity. You're going to need someone physical enough to hang with these explosive tight ends like you know, for example, Kyle Pitts, the one that Gator fans are all going to be familiar with. Um, he's kind of a Swiss army knife because he's best suited at safety, I think, but he's big and strong enough to play linebacker. So he fits perfectly into that hybrid role. He's a very good tackler. He's excellent at coming up and stopping the run. He's not quite there in pass coverage. He's going to need some work, but that's what the coaches are for. So I think Florida got a very, very versatile guy that could play multiple positions and I think that's what he liked about Florida too well and I think particularly when we're looking at that position um, this is a position that I think Donovan Steiner has moments where he is brilliant and I, I, I look at in 2018 where he sacked Fitzgerald at Mississippi State 
I look at the interception in the end zone that he had last year against Auburn. Um, and I look at Trey Dean that I think was a round peg in a square hole with how they were trying to use him. Um, but in I also hybrid position. Yeah. So, but I also look at Sean Davis. He was successful in the safety position when he was used that way. And so I think McMillan has a really good crew to learn from, not only in Grantham in a coaching capacity, but also the players that are on the field. Um, so you look at, you know, the, the monster year. And I think, and Neil, I want your opinion on this. I think Sean Davis had the most underrated year last year of all Gators that people don't talk about the impact that Sean Davis had on the field. I think he was, he, he was clearly the most underrated, least talked about defensive player that had the best year. Um, and I think getting him back is huge for the Gators. And I think McMillan will eventually learn from the plays that Davis had um, for us, even though, you know, they won't overlap when they're there. But I think he's going to set a line in the sand and a, a, a good um, foundation for learning for McMillan. Well, I mean, I think the reason that you and I work so well together is um... – as two people on this podcast is that we have differing views. Um, I don't think I can really challenge anything you just said. I think he is one of the most underrated players that Florida's had on either side of the ball in a long time. I think maybe, I mean, maybe some people are a little, maybe they underestimate or undervalue what Matt Elam did in 2012 a little bit, but like since then, and maybe Jared Davis a little bit. um, I mean, Sean Davis had, one of the better years at in any position in the defensive back that I can remember for the last decade or so, maybe not quite up there with Elam and 12, but he, he, he was everywhere. He was making plays left and right. The pick against Auburn, the big return against Auburn, the big return against Kentucky. Uh, I mean, the punt returners field vision to pick up his blocks, let the wall get set up and take that down 60 yards down the field, not only to stop a Kentucky drive, but set up a Florida drive. Uh, I mean, he just did all the little things here and there. And he was, I think, someone that Florida is going to really lean on this upcoming year. But that that sort of brings us back to McMillan. And I think what Gator fans should know about McMillan above all else is that he is a phenomenal wrestler. And I know that a lot of Gator fans are not necessarily the biggest wrestling fans. But I'll tell you, as someone who lives up in the Northeast and who grew up in the Northeast, wrestling was huge up here. It's it's almost what college football is in the South. Not quite, but it, it's pretty close. And as a wrestler, Donovan McMillan was 101 and 18. This is not his best sport. And last year, he was 41 and four as a wrestler and made it all the way to the state championship match. Again, this is not his best sport. So if he's winning 41 out of 45 of his matches last year in what is not his best sport, just think about the athleticism he brings to the football field. So I think Neil made some very good and interesting points as far as his, his skill in wrestling. Um, I know that wrestling does help with tackling and proper tackling technique because a lot of people want to arm tackle or they want to uh, kind of finesse someone to the ground. And that's, that's really not how you do it, especially when you're playing big boy football. Like a lot of these guys are going to learn when they get into the SEC. So the fact that McMillan has that wrestling experience and the fact that he 
has committed to second nature, uh, being able to put his hands and his, his arms in the right place to get someone to the ground. You find a lot of times that even, even players that may not be as good of athletes um, or maybe they don't have the same speed or agility, but these players happen to also have wrestling in their wheelhouse, uh, they tend to do better. Also, from what I've seen, it appears that Donovan McMillan is a playmaker. And for whatever reason, he's not garnering the, 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 the eye of the scouts in the way that these other safeties are. Um, but I think he's going to do a great job, and I think he's going to impress a lot of people. You know, you, you go back to players, and I'll, I'll be quick with this because I know we want to move on. But I, I look back to players like Keanu Neal, who was not the most highly recruited player. Um, you know, back when Keanu Neal was coming on as a freshman, uh, he's definitely not one of those players that I looked at like, oh, this guy's going to be great. But, you know, you look at Keanu Neal now, and he's, he's in the NFL, and he's doing a pretty good job. So that's a really good, it, that's a really good comparison, Dustin. Yeah, that's a really good comparison. Ken O'Neill's gotten all sorts of honors too for his type yep. of play. Absolutely, pro, pro Bowl for sure. So moving on, I want to talk about Marcus Burke, a consensus four-star wide receiver out of Jacksonville. Neil, I know this guy is someone you've been super excited about. So let's hear your thoughts on him, Neil. Okay, so as everybody knows. Florida and Georgia frequently go head-to-head for recruits. I think, as most of us know, Georgia has been winning those battles. That's just part of the keep it respectful but keep it real mantra of this podcast because, you know what, keeping it real means acknowledging something that's going to hurt, but Georgia has owned Florida on the recruiting trail. Nothing short of it. They have dominated. They've dominated the Gators on the trail, but not this time. And I know that Georgia fans just love flapping their gums on Twitter, but – don't let them tell you any different. This was a win for Florida over Georgia on the recruiting trail. Does it erase all the head-to-head losses Mullen has ever taken to Kirby Smart? No, but it's a step. There's a lot more work to be done, but it is a start. Now, as for Burke, he's a pretty well-rounded wide receiver. He's super explosive. He can really take the top off of the defense with his speed. He's got quick feet, quick hands, all the good stuff that you want in your wide receivers. And and, and I understand that you don't typically see wide receivers dropping passes on their huddle tapes or on YouTube, but all the scouts who watch him say that he's got very good, consistent, soft hands. He could get a little bigger. He could grow into that frame some more, probably needs to get a little better with his blocking, but give him a few months in Nick Savage's system, and I think he's going to be a stud. I will add, looking at tape in preparation for this podcast, I think he's got the hands of David Nelson, and I think he's got the speed of Dallas Baker. Uh, that, that's the best comparison that I can make. So David Nelson was somebody that could be counted on with the hands when you needed them. Think about that 2008 uh, SEC championship when we played Alabama here in Atlanta. Yep. And Dallas Baker could turn on that second jet when you needed him to turn it on. Dallas Baker could turn on that second jet. So that, that that's the best comparison that I can make in looking at him um, because he doesn't, have any speed times um, that are listed but just watching the tape of him that's the best comparison that I can make between two great Gator receivers now again as Neil said the fighting 1980s in Athens will make it seem like they didn't want him or they don't need him but again this was a win for Dan Mullen absolutely and what he's put on film reminds me a lot of what Freddie Swain became in his final seasons as a Gator 
under Mullen, and I'm excited to see how he might be used in that role as both the receiver um, and I look forward to seeing how he how he develops even as a blocker. He does have that size, and as you mentioned, Neil, as he fills out that that six three one hundred and eighty pound frame, I believe he'll 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 do a solid job on that side of the ball. Um, and I think he's a go getter from from his tape. I think he's a go getter, and I think he's going to make plays. So moving on, I'm actually super excited to discuss this next recruit for multiple reasons. This guy is an offensive lineman, and his name is absolutely amazing. His name is Jake Slaughter. Yes. (laughs) Yes. On top of his name being amazing, this guy also flipped from Florida State. So as we continue, go for it. He flipped from who? Florida State. Where are they? I've never heard of them. Do we we play them this year or anything? Yeah, so as we kind of continue the narrative of – Florida just absolutely defeating Florida State in every way possible when it comes to football. Jake Slaughter, what are your thoughts, guys? I mean, this is awesome. Well, for, for, firstly, I need to know if we're calling them the Fighting Willies or the Fighting Do Somethings or the. Uh, well, he's gone. That's not. No, he's gone. Oh, but, God. I mean, but just <laughs> do, something, do something will live forever. I mean, do something just should just live forever just like why don't we make fun of norvell for his cornrows call him the fighting cornrows or something now now quickly let's get the record straight so this guy's a center but um more often than not the recruiting websites don't really rank centers high but this guy is actually the number nine center in the country right according to the 24 7 sports composite so i like this i like that we got a stud center he's a big kid too I like that, but I like the fact that Mullen is flexing his muscles against Florida State now, that we are officially back on the recruiting trail in Florida against our in-state rivals. It's one thing to flip against a Georgia, a Tennessee, or something like that, but to do it in-state against somebody that was committed to an in-state rival, though you know Florida State has to show up for a game in order yeah. to be rival, it means something. Um, and I think it really shows that we've got some positive momentum on the trail. To a degree, yes. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that both FSU and Miami suck right now. FSU just had a second straight losing season, and the Hurricanes are officially the, the third best football team in the Miami Metroplex. Remember, Miami got shut out by the technicians of Louisiana, and they lost to an FIU team that... You know, it's not just, oh, they're FIU. They should be beating FIU. No, FIU lost their rivalry game to FAU, Florida Atlantic, 37-7. to So let's just clear that up. They're not the second best team in their own Metroplex. Miami is the third best team in their own Metroplex. Ah! Oh, my. <laughs> oh, man. You, you, you oh, went there. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job as someone to provide entertaining content for Gator fans if I didn't take shots at our rivals whenever the situation arose. But turning back on a serious note for a second, uh, Casey, I do think there's a good bit of truth about what you just said about Florida beginning to take back the state of Florida on the recruiting trail. But that statement is also very much pending the status of the Miami Palmetto Five. There was a time not that long ago where Florida was thought to be in the lead for Jason Marshall, Savion Collins, Leonard Taylor, Brashard Smith, and Corey Collier. Now it looks like the only one Florida even has a shot at is Collier, 
and we don't even have him yet. So that, that would definitely hurt your argument. I think generally Florida is slowly starting to do better within the state of Florida. I don't think it's time to fly the mission accomplished. We officially own the state again on the recruiting trail flag yet. But anyway, back to the matter at hand, Jake Slaughter. I like him a lot. It's hard to get the best read on offensive linemen from their huddle tapes unless they have some kind of camp highlights to go along with it. Self-professed couch tweeter over here. You know, I'm not at the camp, so it's hard for me to know everything. But from what I can tell, he is a bit of a project, but he has got a lot of upside at the end of that project. He was a, I think he was a first team selection, uh, all Marion County. He blocked for a guy that rushed for like 2,300 yards or something last year. So that's obviously good. But the physical tools are there. He's big, as Casey mentioned. He's 6'4", 300 pounds. He's strong. He can pancake you before the QB's taking his first step of his drop back. He's got a pretty heavy initial punch off the snap. And his feet seem like they're quick enough to get the job done. The other thing that I should mention is that John Hevesy really wanted this guy. And he does have a solid offer list for a three-star. As Dustin mentioned, um, it's hard for centers to get a lot of love on these recruiting sites. But he does have some decent offers. Uh, I mean, Auburn, solid SEC program, really wanted him. Utah, the top 10 team for most of last year, really wanted him. Uh, Virginia went to a New Year's Six Bowl last year. They offered. Miami offered. Missouri offered. Mississippi offered. There are enough teams out there that obviously think the same way about him that we do. And if anyone can ring some production out of a three-star, it's Hevesy. If John Hevesy wanted him, I want him too. Boom. Gavel banged. Yes, and guys, I just got to say one thing. If nothing else, having Jake Slaughter – next to Richard Garage as the ultimate offensive lineman name duo. If that's not something, I don't know what is. I'll go with that. Yeah, Amazing. totally fair. What, a, what, what, what names that we have? Well, Slaughter, think about this. Slaughter, work, uh, Jake Slaughter working with Nick Savage. I mean, come on. Like, it's perfect, right? I mean, you couldn't script a pair of names any better than that. Absolutely. And then there's Dead. Desmond Watson to complete the July Grand Slam, if you will. This phenomenal defensive lineman. What are your thoughts, guys? Neil, I know you, I know you have a lot of good things to say about Desmond. Yeah, uh, the recruiting services missed them. They, they just missed. I think the three-star rating is a bit more justified for Jake Slaughter since centers are a little harder to get a read on. But I think giving this kid a three-star rating like 247 did just feels wrong. Uh, let's start physical. He's a big guy. He's 6'5", 350. He's a real mountain of a man, as they say. He's probably going to have to drop some of that weight before he sees the field. But as we mentioned earlier, Florida's got Nick Savage in charge. And if you've listened to this podcast in its previous life back in 2018, Casey and I cannot stop gushing about him. He has to be considered the MVP of this program. Uh, I think Lee Begley's got a the case as well. So shout out Lee Begley. But yeah, Savage could not be more aptly named and I trust him to get the most out of everybody he works with. The upside with Watson is that he could slim down a little bit, but for a guy that big, he's super quick on his feet and he's got some pretty damn good pass rush moves for an interior lineman. He's got these super quick and super powerful hands. So he can swim, he can rip, he can just bull rush you and bulldoze you over. And he's just got that nose for the backfield. He's also a natural run stopper who can just eat running backs before they ever get going. Uh, there's plenty of those types of plays in his highlight reel. 
Um, but he's a really good pass rusher for a DT, and I think that that versatility could see him play immediately given the losses Florida's going to have there after 2020. I mean, I, I just love that it's, it, it's, again, another defensive gem that comes out of the Tampa area. I will say, have yourself a month, Dan Mullen. Have yourself a month yes. um, in recruiting. <laughs> Take a bow, sir. Have yourself a month. Um, I, he had an incredible month. And let's just hope Greg Knox can, you know, have a month, any month, any day, any hour. Look, we will certainly talk about the running back recruiting or the, the lack thereof in a, in a future episode. Real quick, before we get into kind of the, the second major topic of uh, this discussion for today, I just want to want to briefly touch on the in-state recruiting versus Miami. For all intents and purposes, it appears that the majority of the Palmetto boys and Neil can go into more detail on what I'm talking about. It, it appears that they're all pretty much going to Miami. And at one point, many Gator fans, including the coaching staff, felt that a lot of those, a lot of those guys would be coming to Florida. Neil, real quick before we get into our next topic, what are your thoughts on the Palmetto boys and the, the, the going situation with players going to Miami or considering Miami as a more formidable team to choose over Florida? Going over Palmetto is not going to be good. I think that's something Florida is going to have to look at as a real possibility. Um, I, I think that Miami not having to play games right now is helping them because the last time they were on a field, they were blanked by the technicians of Louisiana. So the fact that they're removing themselves further and further from that disaster, in my eyes, that was just absolutely brilliant. But the further and further they, they remove themselves from that, I think the better off they'll be in terms of recruiting. Um, and I think that they're selling themselves on, you know, we weren't great last year, but you come in here, you play for us, and, and you will help us get back to where we're supposed to be. And I think Florida is having problems with the ability, with the inability to just walk down the street and recruit these kids, whereas Miami can just go take a stroll, and these kids are right there in their neighborhood. So, and you know, the kids can just walk around the block and see the University of Miami campus. So that's not helping Florida. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I think Florida could go 0 for 5. So just be prepared. All I'll say is if the product that the University of Miami has put out on the field the last few years is something that you want to commit to and something that you believe in committing to, and if Manny Diaz is a coach that you believe that can lead you to the promised land, more power to you. Yeah. I, I couldn't have said it better, guys. Couldn't have said it better, guys. Neil, Casey, man, I, I agree with you guys 100%. So moving forward to our second major topic, I want to talk about the SEC's plan as of right now for the 2020 football season. Now, quick disclaimer right off the bat, we don't know everything that there is to know on this topic because not everything has been decided or released yet by the SEC. We'll definitely be doing a separate episode dedicated to this when we know everything with a schedule breakdown, and we may even have a special guest for that one, so stay tuned. One thing we do know, because it's been determined, is that unless we meet in the college football playoff, Florida and Florida State will not be playing in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. Well, I, I thought. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So, I so mean, it might I, have come true. It might have happened. Without looking <laughs> up at this at the Zoom screen, I thought that Neil was legitimately playing a laugh track. That was. That was <laughs> nope. nope that's job. Casey. That's Casey. I heard some whoppers in my day, but there we go. There's one. Yes. Well, we're just talking hypothetically. Hypothetically, yes. A hypothetical that – thank you for laughing, Casey, because I I was feeling very awkward in saying that. The news potentially came as a shock to most at first because these teams have been playing every year since 1958. So to imagine a college football – season without this game being played is something that can't be easy to do but now that you've had a few days to process the news guys what are your thoughts well growing up in florida you 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 not only looked forward to thanksgiving for the turkey and the stuffing and the cranberry sauce and things like that you look forward to it because i happen to be in a blended family that has Florida people, Miami people, Florida State people, um, and that was always a fun Saturday tradition. And for the last two years, I've been very lucky to go to the Erector set with a brick facade in Tallahassee and to go to the Swamp uh, this past year. And losing that game, I don't care how bad the teams are, and I've said this for years. I don't care how bad the records are. Even in 2013, you know, Neil asked me the other day, and he'll he'll back this up. In 2013, were you looking forward to that game? I said yes. I didn't care. He did because I I it, couldn't believe it, but he did say that. It, it it it, and you know what? For a quarter and a half, we put up a hell of a fight in that game. Just like I'm sure if you were to ask Florida State fans in 2019, are you looking forward to the game? Yes. And they showed up. I mean, they were there at the Swamp. It wasn't like there's, their allotment was empty. They showed up and supported their team because that, that rivalry, that game means something else. That whole series. I mean, you look at all the way back to Spurrier, uh, the Chokadoke, 52-20, the Ronzook Field, you look at Will Muschamp's only win. You look at uh, the Swindle Swamp. I mean, the fact that these – that I can just recall these these years and these names of games that they have, Mullen announcing his arrival in 2018, you know, not kneeing on the ball, knowing that that's the game that you step on the opponent's throat, no, no matter what side you're on. And Jimbo Fisher knew that when he was at Florida State. Getting a coach that understands that rivalry is important. And I think losing it, yeah, I live in Atlanta now, but, and I hate Georgia. I despise Georgia. But Florida State will always be a number one for me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're 0-12 or 12-0 by the time they get to that game. I will always watch every second of that game because you get it once a year and it's something special. And it, it, To paraphrase the Southeastern Conference, it just means more. Or just quote them directly. Uh, The first thing I have to say about this is the optics that come with it are terrible. I get it. Optics are not reality. They're absolutely not reality. But even for the pandemic, these optics that come with canceling the non-conference games are comically bad. It's kind of like the SEC thinks that COVID-19 is this sort of sentient, satanic, 
businessman that's agreed with college football's lawyers to just not be a thing when two teams from the same conference square off, but asking COVID-19 to just go away when interconference matchups take place. No, like that's too much. That's pushing it with them. No, it doesn't work that way. Obviously not. The idea that COVID is somehow less likely to be transmitted when Florida flies halfway across the country to Missouri, well, actually in this case, the other way around, um, but then then when Florida hops on a bus and travels a couple hours northwest is ludicrous. Of course, the reality is a little more nuanced than that. I know that Scott Strickland said it was a matter of running out of Saturdays, and you need an open date on December 12th in case a game needs to be rescheduled. Which makes sense. I get it. It's a good reason. I Couldn't you just schedule the non-conference games for December 12th temporarily? And if you need that date for another conference game, then you cancel it. And then you play the other conference game. That they, like, couldn't you just have a temporary placeholder in place? So I don't think that that was the only reason. I think it feels like it's about monopolizing control with the COVID protocols. Because, I mean, I, I talked to a couple of former players this past week and they made a good point. They both made the same point. How different could different conferences protocols be? How difficult could it be to just agree upon standard COVID-19 protocols for one game? One game that Casey just talked about means so much. Having said that, I think it's possible that a lot of people are expending a lot of energy on a subject that's ultimately going to be moot because I'm still not convinced we have a season. It looks like we're going to give it a go to start with, but I don't think the conferences would be put, would be putting this much effort into their schedules in August if they weren't fully planning to play. But it's not a sure thing because I'm just sort of I'm just sort of squinting my eyes and watching the Miami Me Marlins, uh, the Brewers, and the MLB as a whole, the NBA, NHL, WNBA, etc. I want to see how those leagues fare in terms of COVID nineteen moving forward before we talk about how we're going to have a season that doesn't include FSU. Absolutely, guys. And again, I, I couldn't have said it better. It's, it's definitely frustrating. It really seems like the, uh, the fact that we're not able to play a, a non-conference, especially that Florida's not able to play Florida State, it's certainly disheartening because this is such a special and unique game. Um, yeah, I wanted to just make sure that that my thoughts here are clear. If it does, if this all does come to fruition and we do play the 10 game conference only slate, it would suck not to play FSU. And let's really do it justice. It's not something that you just say, well, that sucks. And you move on from like, it really sucks to not get that chance to play FSU for a bunch of reasons. Not the least of which is that Florida is clearly the better team and figured to win the game by three touchdowns at least. Well, and, and, you know, Neil made the point that why are we able to travel 700-plus miles to Ole Miss, but we can't travel, what is it, 94 miles up the road to Tallahassee? You know, Georgia has to travel to Mizzou, but they can't play Georgia Tech? That's 56 miles away? Like, what? This is Mark Emmert's absolute idiocy and – absolute just inability to lead that I understand conferences do what do what they're going to do I get that I I respect it that the ACC that the SEC the Big 12 Big 10 they 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 all need to do their own thing but a leader steps in and says 
hey, we need to make exceptions for cases that maybe it's less than 100 miles because I, I, I don't know the mileage off the top of my head between Gainesville and Tallahassee. I've driven it. I don't know it off the top of my head, but that mileage is less than Gainesville no. to Oxford or Athens to Columbia, Missouri. I'm so upset we're not going to play them this year, man. It, it sucks. It really – and, again, like I said, it, it doesn't just suck. Well, it sucks, and then you just move on. It's such a – we're going to remember this year as a missed opportunity to hang a very lopsided number on them. That's what I'm going to – if we have a season, that is. That's what I'm going to remember. But you know what? Then again, the whole pandemic sucks. I mean, it sucked two weeks into it. It sucked back in June. It still sucks now in August. And it's not going anywhere. So we're not really at a point in time where we can demand things to be perfect. And at this point, playing 10 SEC games and not getting FSU is better than nothing. Totally get that. It still sucks. I mean, two things can be true at the same time. You make a good point, though. Mark Emmert is the president. He's not the commissioner of college football. But that makes me think college football really probably should have a commissioner or a board or, or, or some kind of circuit where you have a couple of people coming together to decide these things. But there needs to be some kind of right. uniformity. I think this is a – Yeah, they a, can bring 13 guys and gals together to decide in the college football playoff. There, there should be a very similar system, um, commissioner, board – whatever you say. Again, this whole COVID-19 situation and its impact on college football has a, as a whole has been super frustrating. I know at the end of the day, the most important thing is that people are safe. Um, there's, there's legitimate life that has been lost. Uh, it, this is a legitimately awful situation as a whole for the country, and everybody is feeling it in one way, shape, or form. But at the end of the day, to see a season that many Gator fans would say or, or, or did say before all this went down, that this could be a, a chance for the Gators to win the East, that we, we finally would have a chance to beat Georgia and then make waves uh, in the entirety of the SEC, if not at a national level, and probably making the playoff. A lot of people were saying that. Some weren't, but I know I was definitely on that ship. And now it looks like we're barely going to have an SEC season. And maybe, you know, the, yeah. You know, before wrapping up this episode, I do want to touch on one more brief topic. And that's this. Several players made public statements concerning the current climate with social justice. Among them was Zach Carter, Jacob Copeland, David Reese, and Kadaris Tony. Carter talked about how, and I'm quoting him directly here, until we, until we start using our platforms and speaking up for ourselves, the NCAA will continue to take advantage of us. There is power in unity. He also tweeted out, quote, do they really love us or do they just love what we can do? End of quote. Meanwhile, Reese tweeted out, again, I'm quoting him, can't even speak your mind and say how you feel in today's world as an athlete without somebody sitting at home patrolling Twitter, waiting to put their negative two cents in. Tony tweeting that opting out might be a better decision. And Copeland, quote, tweeted him saying, thinking it over and you honestly might be right. And Copeland and Carter were both both tweeted out a graphic saying, we are united. 
which echoed a lot of demands we've seen from the Pac-12. What do you think? With the social justice, we had a really good episode, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, um, with Shannon Snell a few weeks ago regarding the social justice movement and regarding the thoughts of African-American and minority student athletes that necessarily I wouldn't have the ability to either empathize with or understand or comprehend. Empathize is the wrong word. I can certainly empathize with it, but I don't understand the struggle that a lot of people in this world go through. And knowing that this disease has disproportionately affected communities of color, especially here in Atlanta, I think it is our duty as fans to support players like Kadarius Tony and Jacob Copeland if they don't want to play during the COVID-19 crisis. That's the right. I mean, looking deeper at a social justice issue, this is a conversation that we just can't have and move on from. This is a continuing conversation. And whether you agree or disagree, it is completely ignorant, insulting, and heartless to say that these players just need to play on the field and keep their opinions to themselves um, because they're risking their body, their mind, um, and they are sacrificing a lot more than somebody like you or me as a fan would be. So we are obligated to hear their voices and hear their opinions and respect what they have to say and respect what they have to believe because they are the face of our program. These Twitter attitudes of, I don't want to hear you know, what you have to say, just play a ball game. You're getting a free education. Just shut your mouth and play the ball game. Shut up and dribble. You know, shut up and dribble, shut up and defend, shut up and fill in the blank. It is ignorant, it's insulting, and it is not to the character of what the Gator standard should be. Dan Mullen talks about what the Gator standard is for players. There needs to be a Gator standard for fans that we need to respect and we need to understand what they're going through. And that doesn't necessarily mean, I've never said we have to agree with it. I said, we have to respect it. And I think that's something that's a deeper issue in this country in 2020, that we can't respectfully disagree with anything anymore. It's turned into, if you don't agree with me, you're automatically wrong or you're stupid or you're inane or you're irrelevant. And that's just not the case. The Gator standard is, I will respect you as a human being and I will listen to you. Social justice is simply in its barest terms, not telling a player to shut up and dribble, not telling a player you're getting a free education, so shut your mouth, not telling a player you're there to play ball. No, college, you are there to learn. And I think that really harps, and Neil, you've been on this podcast both iterations with me. These are student athletes, they're not kids. And when we say student athletes, they are learning in the classroom. So they are kids, but they're not. Yes. But, but but they're learning. Right. They're they're student athletes at this point. Correct. Correct. So we can't not treat them with respect and dignity. I I would add one thing onto that. Um, If you're a fan, again, we're not talking about having to agree, but if you're a fan and you don't agree, and you want to voice your disagreement, be careful, okay? We saw two years ago, we saw a Georgia baseball player named Adam Sasser yell, put the, and then the N-word with the E-R at the end of it, put the N-word in the game. The player he was talking about, Justin Fields, transferred. 
He is now a Heisman candidate at Ohio State. Okay, this was two years ago. This is before all this, all this shit hit the fan, so to speak. Okay, now tensions are exponentially heightened. If a fan had that effect two years ago, you'd better believe that some of these players are going to have quicker trigger fingers now than ever before. So don't, and you know what, if, if you want to say, well, they're soft, oh, they're, oh, they're, they're P words, whatever. You know what? That's precisely the attitude that's got us in the mess we're in right now. It's that exact unwillingness to even hear someone out and go straight for the insults and say, oh, they're coddled, they're pampered, whatever. That's why we're having the problems we're having right now because we can't have civil discourse. We just go right for that. So again, if you're gonna disagree with someone, that's fine, but be careful. Walk that line with care. You know, it's, it's important, I think, to respect where we are as a country now, but where we've been as well. Um, we yep. need to um, understand that not all of our journeys have been the same. Not all of our stories are the same. And social justice isn't going anywhere, nor should it, in my opinion. As a fan, I'm guilty for not understanding um, and maybe not thinking about it. And you know what? Now, thanks to Kadarius Tony and thanks to Jacob Copeland and Zachary Carter and others, we can now respect their story and where they are. Um, so just to wrap it up from my end, if there is a season this year, we really need to look at things not only from a fan standpoint, but also a student athlete and a societal standpoint. Because really, social, if you break down the meaning of the word, social is a societal word. Justice meaning equality for all. Why are we not supporting societal justice for all? And really, that's, that's just the core basic tenet of the word. And I'll, I'll add something else that we both mentioned and think, well, we covered very extensively in the Snell podcast, but can't be stated enough. I'm sure that a lot of people who are going to disagree with those players and have those, you know, maybe not so nice things to say to them are going to be the ones to say this too, but they kind of need to hear this. We don't get to break up football and social justice right now. I understand we use college football as an escape. We use it as something we can all come together for and you know put aside our differences from Sunday to or for, yeah from Sunday to Friday and just link arms and sing the Gator songs and just forget about everything else in the real world. But we don't have that option right now. Now scholarships are very valuable. And these players are receiving scholarships. They're receiving a ton of benefits from the university. So for players to act like they're not receiving benefits or they're underprivileged, if I might say that word, um, I, I think that, that that might be a step too far. Um, but at the same time, it's, it is important to understand that they have rights and they have needs and without going into too much more detail into that, I think we need to listen to their, to, to what they're saying. And I'm, I really do hope there's dialogue with that said, that's about all we've got for this episode of the, in all kinds of weather forecast. We do anticipate more news coming on the Gators schedule soon. And just as a friendly reminder, we do 
have not one but two special guests booked for future episodes, both of whom were former first-team All-Americans for the Florida Gators. Precise release dates are to be decided because when the SEC announces the 2020 schedules, we will have a ton to talk about with that. But that's what's coming up on the horizon for the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast podcast. So, as always, we thank everybody for listening, and we hope you stay safe. And, of course, go Gators. Go Gators. Go Gators.